Welcome back to Emmaism, a philosophy podcast for students of philosophy, because that really is what we all are, seekers of knowledge. Happy Friday, and once again, it's time to philosophize. Before we get into the philosophy today, I wanted to promote my book once again. I recently published a book called How to Excel in Undergraduate Philosophy, and it was the number one new release in philosophy reference the week of its release after pre-sale. If you enjoy my podcast and feel like the philosophical study is substantive, then this book is definitely for you. Today, though, I will be presenting a philosophical case against market share liability. I came up with this argument during my philosophy of law class this semester and wrote my first paper on it. I think that it ended up being a pretty cool application of philosophy, so I'm excited to share it with you all. And here we go. So market share liability is a legal doctrine introduced in 1980 for application in the Sindel v. Abbott Laboratories case. Market share liability is a non-identification liability rule, which is contrary to what is traditionally considered by courts to constitute liability. Traditional principles of negligence require that the defendant is causally linked to the action for which he is being held liable. Moreover, before the adoption of market share liability, plaintiffs held the total burden of proof for the lawsuit, including proving direct causation. Currently, alternative forms of joint and several liability, like alternative and market share liability, have changed the legal conditions in various states under which a plaintiff can establish a tort case, primarily concerning expectations establishing what constitutes appropriate causation. And that's the key here. What constitutes appropriate causation? This podcast will present an argument against market share liability. It will focus on a principle-based objection to its establishment and will secondarily consider the consequences of it as a reason to reject its legitimacy, especially in the cases of its impact in the pharmaceutical industry. To accomplish this, I will first provide a brief history and present the significance of market share liability. Then, I will posit the principle-based approach against its place in the jurisdiction by citing principle-based primarily Kantian objections. Following that, I'm going to secondarily offer an outcomes-based consequentialist argument as a reason to reject the use of this specific kind of liability. I will end with a discussion of possible objections to my argument and concluding remarks focusing on the impact of expanding liability to include market share liability. So, First, I'm going to start with some context that aims to inform a baseline understanding of what market share liability is for the purposes of this podcast. For that, I will primarily focus on the facts of the case of Sindel v. Abbott Laboratories and the reasoning behind the court's decision in Himowitz v. Eli Lilly and Company. I take these cases to demonstrate two differing perspectives on applying market share liability to similar cases and thus together provide a brief but comprehensive overview of the implementation of this kind of liability. Let's first explore Sindel v. Abbott Laboratories. So DES is a synthetic form of estrogen that was prescribed to pregnant women from 1938 to 1971 to prevent miscarriages and premature deliveries. DES was formally granted approval for use as miscarriage preventative in 1947 by the FDA. In 1971, it was found that DES was linked to clear cell adenosarcinoma, CCA, which is a rare type of cancer. The FDA did not ban its use of DES. It only informed physicians that they should not prescribe it to pregnant women. DES was created and distributed by over 200 manufacturers at that time and sold as a generic. 
To further contextualize, a generic is a medication that is chemically identical to a quote-unquote brand name drug and the same in its dosage, route of administration, use, and often in its form, like its shape. Generics are often launched after the patent for the branded name of the drug runs out. Now, Due to DES's expansive use, several women who are daughters of mothers who took this drug during their pregnancies develop CCAs and other um, abnormalities as side effects of being children of DES-ingesting parents. The first DES product liability case was taken to the Supreme Court of California by Judith Sindel, who held that the pharmaceutical manufacturers were negligent. Sindel could not determine which manufacturer specifically produced the pills that her mother ingested throughout her pregnancy because DES was filled, again, as a generic prescription. Thus, causation as traditionally understood could not be established due to the lack of control over how these DES pills were dispensed. Although causation is a typically necessary element for the plaintiff to establish when forming a tort case, the Supreme Court of California removed that previously existing requirement of establishing a specific identity to the party that is liable and created the market share doctrine of product liability. According to this doctrine, manufacturers can be held liable in proportion to their market shares within the industry in question. Now, Himowitz v. Eli Lilly and Company is going to be overviewed as it provides a more comprehensive view of the doctrine. So, in 1989, the New York Court of Appeals followed California by endorsing market share liability in the case of Himowitz v. Eli Lilly and Company. The language in the decision explicitly states that market share liability was applied by the court in order to create the possibility for plaintiffs to continue with their cases in court that would have otherwise not been considered under regular liability theory. This adopted adjustment to liability law primarily developed due to the DES case plaintiffs not being able to establish concert activity or cause of action. The actions of manufacturers of DES brought about a collective of action and thus created statistical risk. These manufacturers did create the conditions by which it was impossible for victims to trace back the drug they ingested to its manufacturer, but the question rests on whether they should indeed be held responsible in proportion to their market share. Only parallel activity was demonstrated by the manufacturers, which is why market share liability was adopted. In both cases, Sindel v. Abbott Laboratories and Himowitz v. Eli Lilly and Company, the courts ruled to adopt market share liability. Furthermore, they decided that all of the manufacturers, five existing at the time, were liable for providing compensation to the plaintiffs. Each manufacturer was held responsible for the compensation that was proportional to their market share in the industry. Ultimately, market share liability removes the previously existing requirement in liability law for the plaintiff to establish specific causation and allows the plaintiff to proceed with a tort case that would have not otherwise been feasible under traditional liability theory. Now, I'm arguing that there's substantial reason to reject market share liability from a deontological perspective, and I'm going to be presenting the principle-based argument from three pillars— The first pillar is predictability as not causation. The second pillar is the concern of the nonspecific actor. And the third pillar is a Kantian objection, adherence to this formula of humanity. So I'll start with the first one, which is predictability is not causation. At its core, 
Market share liability enforces a standard for predictability as a measure for liability. This is a shift from the traditional legal understanding of causation as explanation to causation as prediction. The purpose of establishing causation is to tie a cause to an outcome. Thus, typical legal causation constitutes an explanation that deftly and specifically narrates a chain of events that leads to the outcome of interest. The causation as prediction shift changes that expectation as causation can be established in these liability cases as what cause could have predictably led to the outcome. In the DES case, causation as prediction likely presented something like this. If each of the manufacturers acted in parallel to create and distribute indistinguishable generics, then one could reasonably predict that they are responsible for the amount of outcome that resulted from the proportion equal to their market share. It seems extreme to posit that someone should be held liable for a harm that predictably they could have created. In asserting this, I do want to note that the evidentiary standard for civil cases does hold actors liable for harms where it is established that the actor is greater than 50% likely to have caused the harm. That still has the qualifier of likely and could. So here, what I mean most nearly is that the actor is one of many in a group where one actor is indeed the harmer, yet the specific actor cannot be traced. So one of the group members, an arbitrary actor, is blamed even though they may not have caused the harm, simply because they are one of many actors in the group and they could have caused it. In this potential liability scheme, actors who are a part of a particular industry acting in parallel with their peers would be held responsible for the predictive outcome of their action, even if their outcome was not the experienced harm by the plaintiff. This is counterintuitive to our general assumptions and wants about liability theory. Typically, if an actor's action did not cause the harm at hand, then they're not liable for paying the compensation based on that action. Even though it is unfortunate that without market share liability, some plaintiffs, without substantial evidence to establish causation on a direct actor, would not be able to bring their liability case to the court, it is what is just for the unestablished actors who would be liable under market share liability. If the courts are able to apply the market share liability rule, then there is an injustice committed legally toward the potential unestablished actors. It would not be fair for an actor to be responsible for a harm that can only be proved to have predictably come from them. What would it mean to imagine a society that holds individuals liable for an act that another has predicted them to have been a potential contributor to? This would amount to imaginative accusatory grounds based on a potential. The issue of the nonspecific actor, Pillar 2, is just as concerning. As Sindel v. Abbott Laboratories and Himowitz v. Eli Lilly Company established, the doctrine of market share liability completely eliminated the previously critical element of a tort case, which is proving direct causation, a specific actor. It is generally uncontroversial to posit that one should not be held liable for an act for which they cannot be proven to be the specific actor of. According to market share liability, actors can be liable for certain harms within their industry, even though they may not have performed the action that created the harm for the victims. Indeed, parallel action exists and was prevalent in the DES cases, but the sole fact that each actor performs an action that could have led to the harm at hand, cancer, and other serious long-term side effects, does not establish them as the actor whose actions led to the harm. 
Moreover, even if we grant the premise that manufacturers breach their duty in informing their potential and actual customers adequately, it must be established that they are, in fact, the direct cause of their harm. That bar is simply not met here in these market share liability cases because there is no specific actor at fault that is established. The concern of the unspecified actor illuminates the Kantian concern, pillar number three, which is that market share liability violates the formula of humanity. The formula of humanity is the second formulation of Kant's categorical imperative, and it holds that we ought not treat others as a means to an end and not as an ends in themselves. In the case of market share liability, individual actors are merely regarded as members of a group that is to be held responsible to achieve a certain socially desirable end, held responsible for paying compensation to the DES plaintiffs. The violation of the formula of humanity arises when constituents of the group are viewed merely as members and not of their not in their individuality, especially in relationship to a cause of or a particular outcome. Treating individual actors as mere means to an end violates what we most fundamentally believe to be crucial as a, you know, duty to others. This is an inference that the Kantian principle that we ought not to treat others as a mere means to an end licenses, and thus, because we are compelled to enforce this inference, we must fully adhere to the principle. Here, I assume a loose model of reflexive equilibrium as a practical baseline to justify moral and permissible actions. It is largely intuitive to think that we ought to model our principles based on our inferences and revise by reflecting vice versa. The justification for using an adaptive preference model is out of the scope of this podcast, unfortunately, and maybe at a later date I will try to justify it. But if we grant that there is an a priori duty to treat individual actors in their wholeness, even if they act in a potentially negligent manner, then the market share liability doctrine violates the formula of humanity. Additionally, the parallel activity of individual actors should not constitute a scenario where it is permissible to treat those individual actors as mere members of an acting group. It is against our intuitions that we would be permitted to treat others, regardless of their actions, as a means in order to achieve a socially desirable end. So, I've just given the deontological framework as reason to reject the legitimacy of the legal doctrine. Now, I'm going to briefly present an additional argument against the doctrine of market share liability. This argument focuses on the various negative outcomes of enforcing this kind of expanded liability, and in this way, it's consequentialist. First, the outcome of enforcing market share liability will adversely affect innovation and overall industry development. When liability is expanded, prospective actors will be less likely to act in risky ways. But it may be the case that risky actions benefit society at large. One relevant example of this innovation in the, in the pharmaceutical industry is the fact of its innovation of drugs. Pharmaceuticals and manufacturers play critical roles in the creation, production, and distribution of life-changing treatments. It is logical to assume that with all treatments, there are side effects. A reasonable person, when taking a prescription, assumes the risks of potential side effects and adverse reactions. It would be unreasonable for them to assume that a prescription has no side effects, even if it is approved by the FDA. It is not illegal for a pharmaceutical manufacturer to create, produce, and distribute a drug or treatment with side effects. It is not negligent of them to distribute FDA-approved treatments that have side effects, again, 
not negligent, then it's not wrong. It's not illegal. If these companies were held liable for the adverse effects that result from the medications that others in their industry produce and distribute, it would hinder their motivations to invest in progressing their treatments. Therefore, with a market share liability rule, pharmaceuticals may decrease their innovation as they would potentially be liable for a harm that another actor in their industry caused, though of course only liable for the percentage of the harm that is proportional to their market share. There is substantial social good that comes from innovation by actors who would be affected by the widespread adoption of expanded liability doctrines like market share liability. Even in the DES cases, the pharmaceutical manufacturers did offer a benefit to society despite adverse effects of the medication being felt by the children of mothers who took the medication. Specifically in the DES case, a small number of daughters exposed to DES, one in 1,000 developed the rare cancer. It's plausible to assert that in proportion to the benefits that were realized by the innovation connected to DES and the positive outcomes for individuals taking it for the effective treatment of prostate and breast cancer are more substantial than the harm suffered by the number of individuals who experience adverse effects. We also ought to take in consideration the mistakes made um, in evaluating the outcomes of DES and how that was used later on in evaluating outcomes of different drugs. That was indeed innovation in itself, and it obviously had a benefit. Um, You do things once, you learn from it, and you're able to apply that knowledge in the future. So there's that. Now, more individuals benefit from the actions taken by those who may be subject to market share liability. Consequentialists must admit, they have to admit, it's part of their doctrine that more the more an action creates a benefit, the more it is seen as permissible and even obligatory. These outcomes can be averted by eliminating the doctrine of market share liability. The section like of the podcast listed the negative outcomes and the specific kind of expanded liability and thus necessitates the thought that these consequences should not exist if market share liability were to be discarded as a legitimate legal doctrine. Without the hindrance of this expanded liability, actors would be able to pursue socially desirable behavior in the normal tort system that holds actors reasonably accountable and presents suitable opportunities for victims to seek compensation if a harm indeed incurs. Proponents of market share liability may argue that objectors are incorrect in their assessment of its application and outcome. And it is important to be charitable to our opponents. And so I will discuss the two objections to my rejection of the doctrine and will respond accordingly. First, Supporters of market share liability may argue that the manufacturers were to blame for creating a drug and a scenario where people cannot trace back the harm because DES was marketed as a generic. Therefore, because it was a generic, they should all be held responsible in some shared way. Moreover, because pregnant women were described DES throughout their pregnancy and because the prescriptions were filled as generics, it is quite plausible that each of the actors actually did cause direct harm to the plaintiffs. These critics raise an important objection, but I must deflect their criticism as irrelevant to the core of my argument. The fact that it is probable that one of the manufacturers were to be found to share the liability does not mean that it is certain, and thus no direct causation is still established by the plaintiff. Plausibility is not an adequate measure of causation. There must be substantial evidence that invokes a specific actor who must have necessarily caused a specific harm. 
The market share liability case even seems to present as contrary to the historical plaintiff burden of proof, which is the preponderance of evidence. The preponderance of evidence is an evidentiary standard for civil cases, including tort law, and it holds that the plaintiff must establish that there is a greater than 50% chance of their account of causation being true. Critics of my argument could secondarily posit that just because the burden of proof in establishing causation has been historically considered one way for the plaintiff to satisfy various conditions, it may not be the case that these expectations cannot change as the legal needs of citizens evolve over time. These critics may see the shifting of the burden of proof to the defendants to prove non-implication in the case of market share liability as justified. I argue that the tort system as is provided enough incentive for actors like pharmaceutical companies and manufacturers to disclose critical information with their customers and to abide by the terms of significant regulations and regulatory agencies like the FDA. The burden of proof should still lie on the plaintiff because it must be up to the plaintiff to recognize the harm they endured, be able to trace back the harm to a specific actor, and be willing to confront that specific actor in a formal legal context in order to recover what was lost. If the burden of proof is shifted to the defendant, then there would be a violation of the principle of the presumption of innocence, and unless the defendant can surely prove that they were not one of the potential actors in the market space who caused the harm, then they are at fault. Also, in cases where there are multiple companies with various market share percentages, then it seems as though the preponderance of evidence standard is not met. It seems unfair that the plaintiff cannot meet the baseline standard that implicates an actor as more than 50% likely to have committed an action that resulted in the harm at question, then the defendant would still have to justify that they're not liable. This appears to be just too high of a standard that does not give due consideration to the initial innocence of the defendants. The tort system without the expanded provisions for liability is adequate. They adhere to the principle of the presumption of innocence and do not necessarily deter actors from pursuing socially beneficial behavior like innovation that may present a risk to some. Critics of my argument against market share liability raise important issues, but ultimately their arguments cannot support the establishment and application of market share liability as a legal doctrine. To conclude just briefly... I argued against the legitimacy of the legal doctrine of market share liability, but I'm going to briefly assert one way I think the courts could feasibly do away with market share liability and ease the concerns of proponents of the doctrine. I propose that class action suits may be the solution. If class action suits were pursued to present cases like DES to the courts, then broad classes are created by the courts and they would eliminate the need for causation as prediction to revert to the traditional way of thinking about liability rules and causation doctrines. That aside, this podcast presented arguments against the legal doctrine of market share liability. It overviewed two clarifying cases surrounding the adoption of market share liability as the state-initiated legal doctrine, Sindel v. Abbott Laboratories and Himowitz v. Eli Lilly. Ultimately, because market share liability enables plaintiffs to bring cases to the court that would otherwise just be thrown out because of the lack of individual causation, and 
Because expanded liability deters actors from pursuing socially desirable behavior, it is not justifiable. Critics raise important objections to my claim again, arguing that DES defendants created this this situation themselves and therefore should be held liable, and that just because the burden of proof surrounding causation has been considered one particular way historically, it does not have to stay the same and perhaps should be tailored to fit the legal needs of contemporary citizens. These critics have well-placed concerns, but because of the principles supporting and the consequence resulting from market share liability, it is simply not justifiable. Well, that's all I have for today. So if you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to take a look at my book, How to Excel in Undergraduate Philosophy on Amazon and all other major bookstores in both print and digital. That's all I have for today's episode of Emmaism. Thank you for listening. And until next time, keep searching for the truth.